0: For me, it was having mentors that were that sort of cared about my life and not just my career. I, I also it's been important to me to sort of enjoy the journey.
1: Welcome back to the Faculty Factory podcast, friends. I'm Kim Skarubsky. Well, you know we're in the Triple H series, The Habits and Hacks from Hopkins. And on today's episode, we have Dr. Eric Bass. Eric, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great today. Thanks, Kim.
1: Well, thank you for being on the podcast, Eric. Why don't you start by telling everyone, who in the heck are you and what do you do at Hopkins?
0: Well, that's a good question. So uh, it it reminds me that I originally came to Hopkins in 1987 to do a two-year fellowship in general internal medicine and ended up staying a little longer than planned.
1: I was just going to say, you have looked at a calendar recently. You do realize that we're not in the 80s anymore, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that the two-year plan went out the window a long time ago. So (laughs) ended up enjoying Hopkins, to be honest, far more than I ever originally had anticipated and loved the Division of General Internal Medicine, which is uh, where I've been. And because of my interest in research and education of the interface between medicine and public health, I quickly learned that Hopkins was probably the best place in the world for doing work at that sort of interface. And so that has been a major factor in why I'm still here after all these years.
1: I love it. I, I hear that comment, that story a lot. It's not uncommon to hear that. I just kind of stopped here, a little way station, pulled off for a minute, was going to be here a heartbeat, and then lo and behold, Zoom, life happens and you think, oh my gosh, I this is the longest rest stop I've had. And we actually, a lot of people end up, we just love it here and really kind of hunker down. What is your area of um, your training and your practice and your research specialty? Again, can you go a little bit more detail?
0: Sure. So I'm a general internist and I hold a position. I'm a professor in the Department of Medicine. I have a joint appointment in the School of Public Health in health policy and management, and uh, epidemiology. I lead a research center. It's our evidence-based practice center. I've been involved in leadership at that center for, I think, 23 years now. And I've also been very interested in medical education most of my career. Got involved with the curriculum development program at uh, what was then Francis Scott Key Medical Center, now, now Bayview. Have been teaching in the medical school for the last Decade or so, leading the foundations of public health course, co-directing the scholarly concentration course or concentration in public health research, and most recently in the last few years became sort of vice chair for faculty development and promotions for the department of medicine, and have really enjoyed uh, that role working with faculty in our department.
1: Well, th- th- what a rich you know, rich background and. I love hearing how you've, you know, expanded your your reach and your expertise and and personally, I you played a really important role in my getting promoted to professor. And I, and I remember at Dr. Gail Domit's celebration when she became a professor, um, you were kind enough to have a little uh, conversation with me one-on-one. You know, encouraging me. <laughs> um, I didn't do well the first time around, and so I was a little dejected. And you gave me a <laughs> lot of encouragement and support, and said. I'm looking forward to your packet going in again. This is going to happen. You know, don't give up. You're doing great things. People, you know, really respect what you're doing. So you, you had a lot to do with my getting promoted. So personally, personal, I want to thank you for that. And so, yeah.
0: Well, you're welcome. And it's the, the fun part of the job is seeing people be successful in, in getting promoted. So.
1: Amen. So everybody you're wondering, well, what is Dr. Bass going to share with us today on the habits and hacks from Hopkins? And it has to do with his gut. His okay. gut, he didn't say he's a gastroenterologist. This is not the gut microbiome per se, but it does have to do with what Eric was thinking about and going with gut instincts. So, why don't you share your stories, Eric?
0: Well, sure. Um, you know, it's, I have, a, I guess, decades of experience at Hopkins now, but uh, there's a few seminal moments, I think, where I felt that paying attention to my gut really made a difference in the subsequent sort of course of my life and my career. And the first one sort of comes to mind uh, was when our son was born. Uh, I was a junior faculty member at that time, uh, had been on faculty just for a, s- a few years, and I wanted to take a paternity leave. Well, back then, there was no school medicine policy on paternity leave. I'm not even sure they had much of a maternity leave policy back then, to be honest, although it was sort of uh, more standard for women to take time off, but I'm not sure that many men had ever sort of requested that. And about the same time, I had a great opportunity to be the principal investigator on a major grant uh, to conduct a, a big multi-center trial. Uh, actually, it was on the value of preoperative testing for cataract surgery and related to some uh, collaborative work I'd been doing uh, with uh, colleagues in ophthalmology. And I made the sort of uh, difficult decision at that time to go ahead and, and take the leave. Uh, even in the absence of a formal policy, I was fortunate to have a mentor and division director who will, were fine with with my doing that. Uh, but I had to decline the opportunity to be the PI on the on the grant. In retrospect, it ended up being one of the best decisions I ever made. Even though the trial was funded, it ended up being published in the New England Journal of Medicine with another colleague as the as the PI and, and first author. Um, I did have the opportunity to be part of that team, so I still was able to contribute, you know, to the work. Um, but I might have had a somewhat you know different role uh, if I had made a different decision. Uh, but on the home front. You know that extra early time that I had with my son, I think, really helped uh, strengthen uh, my bond with him in ways that would not have occurred otherwise. Wow! And even at even when I made the decision, I wasn't even quite sure what to expect. But uh, now that he's about ready to turn 28, you know, I think back and and uh, think that was one of the one of the best decisions that I made. And that was really based on what I felt in my gut that I wanted to do even if it uh, might have meant sort of slowing down the the pace of my, uh, you know, career uh, trajectory toward, uh, toward promotion.
1: Wow. So courageous. And as you mentioned, perhaps at that time, 28 years ago, a bit non-traditional. And could you just set the stage for folks listening, put this in perspective 28 years ago, at what stage were you in your career specifically? You know, where were you in terms of your rank your seniority, if you will, and how many other grants or approximate number of papers? Give, give folks a sense of, uh, I'm there, or I will be there, or I was there, or I kind of put it in context.
0: Well, I was an, I definitely, I was an assistant professor, had been an assistant professor probably for just a couple of years at that point. I was originally joined a faculty after fellowship as an instructor and then became an assistant. So it was still pretty early. I had a long way ahead of me. Uh, on the promotion track, Um, you know, I had, you know, I had some, you know, first author papers at that point. Um, As a generalist, um, my work was going in sort of different directions. It wasn't all as focused as what you might see in in, uh, the CV of many sort of specialists. So I was still sort of, you know, trying to find my way, the best ways to focus the work. At that point, I was really doing Health services research, or what was called outcomes research at the time, and had been involved in some some big um, projects as sort of a, in a collaborative sort of role. You know, I had colleagues telling me, you know, it was really important to, you know, to be a PI on a big, you know, federal grant. And it's, you know, a great opportunity, you know, to be the lead on a, you know, a big a trial that'll influence uh, practice. And I had a mentor that sort of, you know, was you know supporting me and having sort of a, a prominent role in that uh, project. Now, you know, it's also possible that uh, you know I wouldn't have ended up at the PI anyway. Um, a dear colleague ended up as the PI and somebody that I still work with, and he did a great job leading the project. And maybe it was better for everyone that it sort of went that way. Hard to know where where it's going to go. You know, when you're at that early somewhat sort of insecure stage of your career.
1: Exactly. I mean, I'm reflecting on all the early career faculty members that, you know, we work with in the Office of Faculty Development for our various leadership courses and seminars and programs. And I know that you mentor. I'm trying to put myself back in your shoes 28 years ago as an assistant professor on a scale of one to 10. Like, how scared were you of like am I really messing up here am I blowing it I mean here I am at Hopkins multi-center trial this is huge am I literally walking away from what could be my career a career making move I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of if I had a faculty member come up to me and say Kim oh my gosh you know here's a situation you know I'm thinking like walking away from this. I, I kind of might be nervous going, oh, maybe you don't want to take a paternity to leave right now. Can you get the, do the grant and like take maybe when he's a year or two years old or when he's like 18? I mean, how, how do you get over that fear? You have some people telling you, Eric, man, are you nuts? How'd you overcome that?
0: Well, I, I, I think I was really lucky to have uh, great mentors. Uh, so, my immediate mentor was uh, Earl Steinberg, um, who's long, no longer at Hopkins, but I think he was the first general internist to be promoted to professor at Hopkins. Oh, wow. Um, and my division director at the time was David Levine, who everybody at Hopkins knows as a fabulous mentor. You know, they both, I, I give them, I'm really grateful to them because they both listened to what I wanted to do and. Were supportive when I made that decision, even if you know, from a career standpoint, they, you know, could see that, um, you know, that that it, there might change the the course of my path a little bit. But for for me, it was having mentors that were that sort of cared about my life and not just my career.
1: Right. The whole the whole picture and putting things in context. So I guess what I, what I'm feeling from This lesson of your first story about the gut and the value of listening to our gut is that there there are, especially early in our careers, there will be ample opportunity. And um, if we're, we're trained well, you get to this stage in life because you have perseverance and you're a hard worker and you have a great work ethic. And so there is this kind of moment of grace that we have to give ourselves, the folks that we mentor and those who lead us, that there's, you know, there will be pivot points and decision points in life. And it's not necessarily all um, about career. I mean, it's put things in context. I mean, if you you do your life and do what makes, brings you joy, Hmm. that that door closing, the proverbial door closing, (laughs) window opening kind of thing, it's going to work out. It's all going to work out. So I love that story. I know you have a couple more
0: yeah so I think I guess another time that comes back to me was uh, actually going back a little further now actually was a fellow, and I mentioned that I came to Hopkins to do a general medicine fellowship. The fellowship was designed to be primarily to prepare people for uh, careers in sort of public health oriented research but, but definitely a research oriented fellowship um, when I was a fellow um the faculty in the GM division at Bayview were just launching a new faculty development program on teaching skills and curriculum development um, that I was very interested in. Um, and, you know, I was although I had come to Hopkins to do sort of this research training, uh, I was very interested in medical education and I, I sort of wanted that to be part of my career. And I really wanted to participate uh, in this program. And. Um, and at the time, you know, I, I was sort of, you know, here I am, the, you know, Hopkins, the land of research, and all the uh, folks were really sort of advising me to concentrate on my research. You know, it's really important to develop your own focused area of research interest, to be, you know, prepared to sort of uh, write grants and get yourself, uh, you know, established as an investigator, um, you know, and, and that was sort of the, the path that I think most were following. But I sort of stubbornly persisted and, and really wanted to participate in this faculty development program. I ended up being a, a participant as a fellow in the very first cohort of that faculty development program, uh, which you probably know is still uh, still running, uh, you know, sort of, you know, decades later. You know, that ended up yielding great dividends well beyond what I ever had sort of anticipated. You know, I participated in both parts of the faculty development program. I subsequently ended up uh, co-directing the curriculum development program uh, for several years after that. Um, Ended up being a co-author of a book on the six-step approach to curriculum development, which uh, maybe you've seen. Um, uh, You know, other authors, Dave Kern, uh, you know, uh, Pat Thomas, and sort of passed on to other folks. I think it's now in its third or fourth sort of edition, but I had a chance to help put together that uh, first version of it. And, you know, that I'm really sort of, you know, proud of being part of that team um, and seeing sort of a book that has really been used pretty widely. It's been translated into three languages, uh, three other languages uh, so far. Um, And the publisher you know, keeps coming back to the group to, you know, come out with sort of another edition. I haven't been so involved in the later editions, but uh, um, I'm sort of proud of the role that I had initially. What what I hadn't sort of anticipated fully was how much the expertise I developed in curriculum development created other opportunities for me uh, subsequently. You know, so I had a chance to get involved in a num- number of um, projects, involved collaborations within educators at other institutions. Uh, you know, I-, I felt like I had a special set of skills that I could bring to the table that complemented the research skills that I had, but also brought the educational sort of uh, dimension uh, to it. And, you know, I worked with the Society of General Internal Medicine and the Clerkship Directors Internal Medicine to developed what became the core um, um, curriculum guide for internal medicine courtships um, and there was a whole sort of series of work that we did that laid the groundwork for that including some you know surveys that we did uh, using sort of the um, taking advantage of some of the research um, skills that I had learned and applying it to sort of educational uh, topics uh, and then sort of I, I guess when I was sort of a mid-level faculty member, I think either, I might still have been an assistant professor or somewhere between that assistant associate professor. I, I had this sort of opportunity um, to apply to be the editor of the Journal of General Internal Medicine. Um, it's the you know, official journal, the Society of General Internal Medicine. I'd been a member of that society for um, much of my career at that point. And it seemed like a really neat opportunity um I sort of naively um, sort of uh, thought I'd have a shot at it. Um, I didn't realize at the time that usually those positions go to very senior faculty, um, uh, people with more experience than what I had at the time. Um, but uh, again, I was lucky to have good uh, support from the division. Uh, my division director at the time was Mike Clagg. Uh, and, you know, Mike, Mike was great. Uh, he, you know, put the division support behind my application, actually um, contributed some divisional support to the application. And, uh, you know, I got lucky. They ended up, you know, selecting me to serve as the editor for the journal. Um, and I loved it. And where how it ties back to the early decision is that, you know, the journal is one that publishes both research and education. And here, here I was in a position that allowed me to use the experience um, expertise I had developed as both an ed- investigator and an educator. Um, and I think it really, uh, I'm not sure I would have um, been accepted for that position if I hadn't had that sort of combination of interests. In it. And I think it certainly enhanced uh, you know, my ability to, to sort of thrive in that role.
1: Well, we we talk about like serendipity. And so this is another one of those interesting stories where two things you said that kind of like struck me as one is you're incredibly humble when you said, I got lucky. Um, Just kind of like they rolled the dice, like, yeah, this guy will do it. It clearly was not luck, but you you were situated um, perfectly. And that's what is fascinating to me, that here's another example of where, You were advised to focus on your research, and yet there was a gut instinct and something that told you, despite, you know, again, despite some advice going, I don't know, you might really want to think carefully about participating in this curriculum development thing. I mean, what about your research? And you said, no, you know what, I really feel a tug here. So how did that calculation play out um, early on, do you remember like the pros and cons side of that, or or did is this purely a thing of like no, I really can't necessarily articulate it, but I feel were were you feeling a strong pull that I'm going to do this, and I don't I don't know why, and then it, as we say, just by serendipity, it all worked out as meant to be. But how did you get to that flipping mm-hmm. that switch and go no, I'm doing it?
0: Well, you know, I, I I I think I was mindful that it was a bit of a risk that whatever time I'd spent uh, on the education side was less time that I would have, you know, to be working on research, to be writing papers and, you know, developing plans for grants. And, you know, so it it, it meant that I sort of had to accept the, the research side, perhaps going at a um, less brisk pace, I guess. Um, but again, I think what made all the difference for me is I again, had great people around me. And in this case, I, it, I got the chance to um, to know and work with some great faculty um, over at what is now the Bayview campus. It was, you know, then it was the Francis Scott Key um, in a building that actually no longer stands over there anymore. Um, but I got, you know, I worked with uh, Randy Barker and Dave Kern and um, Donna Howard and Penny Williamson, and, you know, a whole group of educators, um, you know, who were really passionately committed to medical education. And, you know, they were sort of delighted that I had chosen to, I think, you know, spend some time with them as a fellow. Um, Mm -hmm. That was before we had a separate sort of track for fellows interested in medical education. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, you know, the, the people around me sort of made it possible to, um, I think, take, take a bit of a risk and, uh, yeah. take a little different path and than, than what it probably, you know, could have been a simpler path.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Good story. I know you have one more in, in your little kit over there.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> I guess the, the fast forward now to the, the most, uh, recent sort of, uh, career dilemma I faced, uh, which was, um, actually just uh probably about four years ago now a little over four years ago the society of general internal medicine which i've you know been a part of my whole career posted a position for a part-time ceo um they had um always had non positions in their sort of executive leadership role and they had decided they wanted to recruit a physician um but do the size and finance the organization they weren't sure they could uh, afford to hire a full-time you know position the service ceo so they had posted it as a you know part-time position um and uh you know that for you know might seem a little crazy cuz you know i i actually, I called my brother early on my brother's a ceo for a nonprofit organization in boston and he just sort of uh Chuckled a bit and said, you know, he wasn't aware of any CEO positions that were uh, really part-time jobs. So He sort of <laughs> warned me that uh, it might, uh, might be difficult to do. Um, and but uh, again, I, I love the organization. I saw it as a great opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, to, to um, support people in academic general medicine at sort of a national uh, level and sort of give back to the organization that had, you know, done a lot for for my own sort of, you know, career development. Again, this is the same organization that took a risk on me and, um, you know, hiring me to be their uh, journal editor. Editor, Right. So I, you know, I talked to my, uh, you know, division uh, director and department director and, uh, you know, they were very good, listened. uh, They were supportive. But I think also we're, you know, concerned that it might, you know, um, might be difficult to sort of juggle, you know, juggle two masters, you know, Hopkins is a pretty demanding master, as you know. Right. Um, And, uh, you know, there was also, you know, the possibility that if I, you know, uh, continued sort of full time at Hopkins, you know, there's a possibility that I would be you know, considered for an endowed chair, which, you know, is sort of the, um, you know, what we all often sort of dream about at night, you know, in our uh, academic careers that, you know, that uh, light at the end of the tunnel, that sort of, you know, uh, gives you that extra. That's um, in your
1: cap, right. Yeah,
0: you know, And then the support and, the, and, and what it enables you to sort of do. And so, you know, so now I'm sort of, you know, having the way you know, does it make sense to do this, to, to complicate my life by trying to sort of take on a part-time role while, you know, staying at Hopkins. Um, and it, meaning that it, I would, you know, give up that opportunity to be considered for any kind of, uh, you know, endowed um, chair position. Um, and, uh, you know, probably, you um, would have been, uh, certainly would have been a simpler path to sort of, you know, stay in a full-time role at at Hopkins. But I, you know, as I wrestled with it over several weeks, talked with uh, several people, you know, I just kept feeling, you know, my, you know, my gut or my heart, I'm not sure which one, but was tugging at me that, you know, this is something I was really, I really wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to try it. I, it was sort of a cha- I, bit of it was a challenge coming, you know, later in my career. And I was sort of I felt like I had at least, a, you know, another um, in it uh, in it for me to sort of pursue another, you know, big challenge. And this just seemed like a a good opportunity. So I ended up, uh, you know, applying for the position and was uh, offered the position and became uh, their first part-time CEO, physician CEO, in, let's see, September of uh, 2017. Okay. Um, so I guess about you, yeah. three and a half years ago. Um, and, you know, I've been, and it turns out, you know, I, I have no regrets. Uh, I love, you know, I love the organization. I love the people I'm working with. Um, I'm working harder than probably I've ever worked in my career. They, um, you know, I'm still trying to maintain what I do at Hopkins and and sort of take on the CEO role for SGIM. Um, so I'm working hours or are as long as they've been uh, before. Sometimes people ask me, you know, am I crazy? Why am I doing this? And I, you know, I, and usually the core of my response is that I just feel really lucky to work for two great organizations, I mean, you know, and I still believe, you know, Hopkins is a great organization full of amazingly sort of talented people. Um, You know, it's hard not to be, you know, motivated, uh, you know, each day when you see the people you get to work with. And SGM is is very similar people that have great talent, heart is in the right place. It's an organization that's deeply committed to uh, a more just system of care. So um, it's gotten that work has gotten me much more involved in the health policy and sort of advocacy world, um, and, um, sort of advocating for policies that allow us to deliver, you know, better care to the patients we serve and better support, you know, primary care physicians who are sort of working hard to, um, enhance the care that we, that we deliver. So I, uh, uh you know, I find that, uh, that was a one of the harder decisions I made i I have uh, I feel like it was the right decision for me was again lucky to have folks that were uh, willing to be supportive of of following uh, following my gut.
1: Mm-hmm. wow, this you you've said so much that's really you know so valuable, eric and and I just kind of want to do a little summary here as I've been taking notes and thinking. so this. Um, you know, friends in the podcast, you know, Dr. Eric Bass has been talking about going with your gut. And he he shared with us three examples of a, a life choice about paternity leave, a choice around scholarship that essentially was, you know, going down an education path that was parallel to his research um, development, but kind of dovetailed at the end there through serendipity and ended up working out with, um for him obviously with a curriculum development book and doing really well there. And then more recently, this, a CEO position leading, uh, you know, the international society, if we'll ask Jim. So, and, and things you've said, Eric, throughout this was risk. You said the word risk at least, you know, three or four or five times. And, and, and as you were talking again, I always try to put myself in the, in the, shoes of our faculty members who may say, my gosh, how did he avoid some common thinking errors? Because a lot of us, when we are given opportunities at these decision points in life, uh, there's a fear, understandably, about making a bad choice, making the wrong decision. And, And many of us can probably think of many times where we have made a misstep and we don't and we wish we could like have a redo. And so I'm curious if you could just share with us some, you know, common elements or denominator or the, the point that you think made everything work out well. And, and I've heard a couple of things. And as you're thinking, I'm sure you'll have something else, but you talked a lot about talking to other people. So th- these decisions, it doesn't sound like to me, like they were impulsive overnight, you know, not really clearly thought out. It's, I heard you say over and over and over again, I had great mentors. There were great people. You did a lot of information gathering, talked to a lot of people, and you also use a term wrestled with. I wrestled with, and for several weeks, which gives me again, the impression that when we have these important decisions to make, we are ultimately the own, our own, you know, the captain of our own ships and our own destinies to a lot lar- in large part. And we get a lot of information. We collect information the best we can. And then ultimately you also said words like my feeling and my heart and my passion. And you speak mm-hmm. about the desires and for, for justice. And so those kind of it, the parts of you, the character parts of you, to me is my my instinct is what you would tell someone in terms of the whole wrapping around to the beginning going with your gut so can you offer any kind of advice to someone who's thinking well good for him the guy's obviously really smart and I can see he's got that tattoo no regurts like in that, that crazy commercial where it's misspelled no regirts no regrets uh you don't you don't have any regrets. but how did you how would you advise someone who is maybe very fearful of making the wrong decision and having a thinking error?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, You know, I think, as you sort of alluded to, it really helps when faced with these types of decisions to reach out to the people you trust. It's why it's so important to have at least, you know, one, uh, ideally more than one sort of mentor, someone with a little more experience Um, you can sort of bounce things off of and at least you know, at least you're making an informed decision. And, you know, at least I felt like I, um, you know, took the time and talked with folks and I felt like I was making informed decisions. Um, I was mindful of the risk associated with each, Um, but I, 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 you know, in retrospect, I'm thankful that I wasn't sort of paralyzed by that, Fear or risk, um, you know, and I, I think some of that um, comes from other parts of my life. I mean, I do have, um, you know, my religious faith is an important part of my life, and and I do, you know, look to that as a sort of foundation to my approach to things, and and so I, you know, I at a certain level, I I felt that uh, you know, even if things didn't go as well as I might have hoped you know that 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 I that I was going to survive you know that I that I adapt and and find a way to sort of deal with it and yeah. you know maybe one or more of these decisions might not have worked out so well um but I feel I could have you know probably could have adapted to that and and adjusted and yeah some of that's just being willing to be flexible being um willing to sort of um, consider new opportunities or options maybe you hadn't considered before.
1: Yeah. Resilient. I mean, you're definitely describing to be an, an innate confidence in your resilience, perhaps mm-hmm. certainly shored up by the foundation of your faith. And also this, just this um, kind of, again, this, this still confidence that, well, worst case scenario, I can bounce. I can, I can I'll figure this out. You know, you talk about this, you know, that there's this, resilience and this confidence that I'm going to bounce back. And also what I, the, the thread in there through all your stories was that there's something in you, innate in you, that was a core value. So to me, it kind of gets to your values that while you were very deliberative and thoughtful and mindful and had the conversations with informants who you trust, It sounds like you never really deviated far from your core values of who I am, your authenticity. So I guess I'm thinking of faculty members who may be afraid of making that mistake is that maybe one pause point is reflecting, well, what are my values? If I have a decision in front of me that for all intents and purposes, a lot of people would objectively say, well, this makes a lot of sense but it does not jive with your core values or Mm -hmm. the the cost of doing that may divert you Mm -hmm. from um, who you are or what's important to you or a fam, say for whatever in the season of life that you do have a young child and it makes objective good sense to do this. But I then practically, I know that there goes, you know, three years of of life because my family will never see me that kind of when I think a, a decision point might be, more easily managed if we are, remain mindful of what are my values, what is most important to me, who am I at my core, and and be less concerned perhaps with the careerism of what would look good on a CV versus what will look good in my heart. And then when I open my my eyes on the pillow every every morning and, and then at night when I put my head on my pillow. So you know values to me is what I hear um through your stories that Every mm-hmm. decision point seemed to kind of come down to who am I as a man, as a person, as well as a scientist and a physician,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's I, I think the thing taking time to sort of reflect on your core values is is helpful. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, that uh, or uh, that was uh, I remember actually one of the things that was done in that curriculum or that faculty development program that I mentioned at the beginning. They actually. One of the sessions was very much focused on, you know, um, declaring your core values. Yes. Um, and I actually remember some of those uh, conversations that took place as part of that program. So, yeah, I think taking time to sort of do that as as you're planning your career, I think makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I think the other thing, as I was listening to you, it reminded me was to, you know, mm-hmm. I also, it's been important to me to sort of enjoy the journey. And, it, you know, I think sometimes folks get so focused on where they want to get to that that can sort of get in the way of sort of enjoying enjoying the journey along the way. And so I think if, if you're enjoying the journey, then to me, it doesn't, and it didn't really matter how long it took to get promoted to professor. Right. Um, I was enjoying the journey. I felt like it would, you know, it would come eventually, but it was not. You know, I was not one of those folks that felt I needed to be a professor by the age of, you know, Bill thirty-five Blank. or forty or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so I think making decisions that allow you to enjoy the journey, and if you enjoy what you're doing, then you know, I think at a place like Hopkins, you know that yeah, you know your your efforts will get rewarded and, and will be recognized. That's right.
1: Well, folks, this has been Dr. Eric Bass. Eric, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your honesty and sharing your stories and insights and helping us all think through um, our careers and as these decision points come in our life and not and not forgetting that you know our gut is a really important uh source of wisdom and uh and as well as the other traditional ways of us learning from everyone else and the data and as scientists, but then deep in our own guts, we kind of sometimes know what's um, makes sense for us. So, oh. any parting thoughts, Eric?
0: Oh, well, I think you. I think you've captured it nicely. I appreciate your uh, taking time to, to let me uh, share a little bit with you and <laughs> and react to it.
1: Oh well, thank you, Erica. Folks, I hope you um, spread the news about the Faculty Factory and join us next time on the Faculty Factory podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions.